Now we turn in uh, God's Word this morning to Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. Our passage will be the first 20 verses in Luke, chapter 2, which takes us to the birth narrative of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, It is my intention to finish out the study of these opening chapters of Luke in two more weeks to come, and then, Lord willing, in the new year, we'll pick up our series on the book of Ezekiel. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Let's first hear God's word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Uh, This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there, was, uh, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them, But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. But as far as this reading in God's word, uh, let us once again look to our God and seek his help and blessing upon our study. Let's pray together. Lord our God, we thank you for... Uh, your word, the life-giving word, which is sharper than any sword and sweeter than any drippings of honey. And we pray that through the ministry of your word, uh, you would uh, do good to us and deal bountifully with our souls. We pray that you would speak to us and grant that which is life from on high. We do pray that you would discern all of our thoughts and intentions of the heart, Uh, You would search us and know our ways, 
and bring us to you and touch our affections and transform our will as we hear the gospel preached, uh, which is power of God unto salvation. I pray that you would grant us uh, this blessing uh, in the power of the Spirit. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Here, Luke gives us a fairly detailed account surrounding the birth of Jesus in ways that the other three Gospels do not, because very likely his source for the Gospel account was Mary herself. And what strikes us in our reading through these verses is the way in which the ordinary and the extraordinary are all interwoven in the narrative in the coming of the Lord Jesus. This is an ordinary birth in one sense. There's nothing supernatural about the birth itself, just like any other delivery you'll see in a hospital, a child born of woman. The conception is supernatural. The birth is not anything supernatural. And yet it is accompanied by the opening of heaven with angelic praise. This is a birth that would bring salvation to all the people of God. The sheer mystery and wonder of the incarnation that in the fullness of time, God sending forth his own beloved son into the world, the eternal son of God taking on human flesh and becoming man, the eternal word of God becoming flesh. It is taking place within the ordinary course of human history into the messiness of human society in the context of ordinary human events uh, touching ordinary not lives uh, depicted in this passage. And this is the gospel the good news of great joy that will be for all the people of God, the birth of the Savior, the coming of the promised, long-awaited Messiah. And it is reported to us by the Dr. Luke. And I want to look at this good news announced this morning through the lens and experience of each of the actors mentioned in our narrative this morning. Through our passage, you see the Emperor Caesar Augustus And we see the infant Jesus himself. And we see the angel who is later accompanied by the host of angels in heaven. And we see the shepherds out in the field at night. And we see Mary and Joseph in the stable with a newborn child, the Lord Jesus. And I want to see how each of them relates to the story, to the coming of salvation in the birth of this child in Bethlehem. You notice first how Luke the historian gives the political background to the coming of Christ, the decree of the Roman Empire. Uh, This is a government policy affecting the lives of Mary and Joseph, providing the setting for Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, we see in verses 1 through 5. Caesar Augustus, uh, this is Octavius, who ruled from 27 BC to AD 14 as the first emperor of the Roman Empire, in his megalomaniac totalitarian ambition, he wants a worldwide census to register all his subjects for tax purposes. As one writer says, in his empire, there will be no taxation without registration. He wants all the people to be recorded. And this is the mighty Roman Empire, a vast territory stretching more than 3.3 million square miles, more than the lower 48 states combined. 
ruling over the whole ancient world, and the king wants a census. Everyone must register with the government. And the decree reaches this little town in Galilee on the far outskirts of the kingdom of Rome, this town of Nazareth. And that's what occasions this pregnant woman at full term to risk and make a perilous 90-mile journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem on foot because she is betrothed to Joseph, who belonged to the house and lineage of David. History records that Octavius had a bit of megalomaniac tendencies ascribing to himself a status of divinity when he visited Greek Asia in 21 BC, he was hailed as the savior of the whole world and the bringer of good tidings and the son of the deified one in the cultural context of polytheistic idolatry. The title Augustus he ascribed to himself means to increase or being illustrious or sublime. And you see also in your own life his influence still lingering on in our civilization. We have a whole month named after him, the month of August. Oh, but the gospel writes him sort of as a footnote. He's but an instrument in God's purposes. Wicked kings and rulers of the earth are but God's servants. As Isaiah chapter 40 says, nations and kingdoms, rulers are less than nothing Augustus' Augustus's decree is but subject to the overruling decree of God, and in God's sovereignty, God uses Augustus' policy in order to fulfill his own word. And this is the only reason why Mary had any business being found in Bethlehem around the time of childbirth to give birth to the son of David in fulfillment of that prophecy given in Micah chapter 5, 2, that the Messiah must come from the city of David, where Micah, looking forward to the coming of Savior, said, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, this little town of Bethlehem, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, to shepherd the people of God. He shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Caesar thinks that he runs the whole world by his decree, that everyone must submit and obey his authority. But the gospel plainly shows at the beginning that it is God on high who overrules all things and through human affairs advances his own purposes of salvation. And when you apply that truth to you, the glorious sovereignty of God is a stabilizer to your living in this world, isn't it? God has a decreed purpose, and all his purposes center upon his Son to make him the head of all things, to give him a people drawn from all nations. The purpose he announces in Psalm 2, where the Lord says, I will tell of a decree, I will tell of my decree, you are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And all the events in human history 
all the affairs of this world are ultimately working towards that decreed end to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, to redeem his people for his glory, and to make Jesus the head of all things. And that is also true of you believers at the individual level, that his decree overrules all things in your life, that his decree, his predestined purpose towards you in Jesus Christ is to bring you to everlasting glory in the kingdom of God, to conform you to the likeness of Jesus Christ. And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he is faithful and he will surely do it. He's a God who works out all things according to the counsel of his will. And in this opening verses of the birth narrative, what a comfort you have of the reminder of the sovereignty of God, that his sovereign decree to glorify his son, to bring salvation, is ultimately what governs this whole universe and is ultimately what governs your life. The decree of kings, the powers of government, whether it be Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon or Ahasuerus of, of Medo-Persia in the story of Esther or Caesar Augustus, whether it be the Supreme Court of our land or Joe Biden or Xi Jinping or Vladimir Putin or whatever ruler who operate with the folly and absolute delusion of their power. All they are ending up doing is to advance God's own purposes. And what great comfort that is for you as believers that Jesus was born into the same political context as so many believers live in this world. Under an authoritarian, dictatorial regime full of oppression, under unjust measures, nonsensical edicts, Jesus came into that context to remind us that it is ultimately his decree that rules and that the gospel works in any political context and the kingdom of God is advanced under any governmental structure to bring comfort to God's people. And so first we see from the perspective of Caesar Augustus, the greater decree of God at work through the decree of an earthly king in the accomplishment of salvation. Well, secondly, then, how is this good news, the coming of Jesus, related to Jesus, to Jesus himself? It's a bit of an odd and weird question to ask. How does Jesus fit into the gospel narrative? Where does Jesus fit into this gospel story? How does the Son of God feature into the gospel? In one simple words, the eternal Son of God is born a man. And as our catechism reminds us, that in a low condition, in an unfathomable act of humiliation and condescension, emptying himself of divine glory, the eternal Son of God, took on human flesh and coming into the world in the most despised fashion. The Lord of glory is not born in a palace, but in a stable. He is laid not in a cradle, but in a feeding trough reserved for animals in a manger in order to show us the nature of Savior that he has come to be, that he is indeed a condescending, full of gentleness, lowly Savior come to raise 
his people out of the dust, uh, the ruin that sin has brought. It's because Jesus here enters into our human condition at the lowest entry point, yet without sin. His saving arm, therefore, is not short to reach the lowest of us all in the ruins of sin. Any of the outcasts and downtrodden under the heavy burden of sin, languishing under the impact of the fall, Jesus has come to reach, and he's showing that by the manner of his entry into the world, he's born in a stable. Verse verse 7, he's born there because there was no place for them at the inn. I can imagine the difficulty Mary and Joseph would have faced on the travel Because of government policy, all the rooms would have been booked by travelers frantically wanting to register in accordance with the law and regulation. There was no room. And Joseph and Mary, being righteous, probably couldn't even share their room together. Joseph did not know Mary until the child was born. All they could get was not even Motel 6 by the side of the highway. It was a stable. And when he comes into the world, the Lord who made heaven and earth, who is to be the heir of all things, comes into the world, they have no place for him. This is how the world sees Jesus. They make no place for him. No place for Jesus in their thoughts. No place for Jesus in their affections. No place for Jesus in their schedules. No place for Jesus in their family life. No place for Jesus in their hearts. Jesus himself said during his earthly ministry, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Throughout his life, a life of poverty, impoverishment, and even at his death, he has no place of his own to be buried in a tomb. This is a manner of the coming of the Son of God into the world. Why such impoverishment? Why such humiliation? And it's only the beginning of that humiliation we see in our narrative. This is only the entry point. It will eventually lead him to the cursed death on the cross. Why did Jesus come as a helpless little child, born of woman, entering the world in this fashion? And the answer is he came into the world to seek and save the lost, to give his life as a ransom for many, to save sinners, so that through his poverty and humiliation, he may make many to be rich, to be rich with salvation, that through his impoverishment, he might purchase for you a title to glory. And this is what we call grace. The utterly undeserved, unearned, unmerited favor of God who demerited any claim to God's favor. This is what we talk about in the scriptures, the love of God that surpasses knowledge. Jesus became a lowly, 
infant, and when he came, they had no room for him at his birth. Just pause to ask yourself a question. Do you have room for Jesus? Do you have room for Jesus in your heart? Do you have Jesus prominently featured in your thoughts? Do you have room for Jesus in your schedule? Do you have room for Jesus in your affections? Do you have room for Jesus in your home and in your marriage? Isn't that what people sing in Christmas time? Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. This is how the Son of God relates to the gospel. He was born, he came, and there was no room. In its condescension and humiliation, he came to save sinners. But that's not how the church responds. By grace, the church is those who receive the Lord Jesus, who's brought into Jesus' own house, who is indwelt by the presence of Christ. Jesus comes to the church and says, Here I stand and knock. Whoever opens, I will come in and sup with him, and he with me. Then thirdly, what was Jesus' birth like from the angel's perspective? You see that in verses 8 through 14. And do you remember how the Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1 that the gospel is something that the angels long to look into? These sinless creatures, angels, being kept by God to dwell in the presence of his glory on high in order to serve him, in order to do his biddings, how did the angels respond to the coming of Christ, an event that they longed to look into. Well, immediately we see one of the angels making an appearance at night to the shepherds in the field. As we noted in our earlier studies, an angelic appearance is a very rare event in the Bible. Angelic appearance is something that happens very infrequently because it happens only at significant junctures in the unveiling unraveling of God's saving purposes. We see angels at crisis points throughout the life of Jesus. Angel coming to attend Jesus in the wilderness when he's tempted by the devil or in the garden of Gethsemane when he wrestled with God in prayer for submission of his will. Angel coming to strengthen Jesus. We see the angels announcing the glorious resurrection in the tomb. And here at Jesus' birth, there is an overwhelming appearance of an angel of the Lord at night, shining with the glory of God. And it makes the shepherds very fearful. It throws them almost into a state of panic. Now, these are men who are used to the night shift. Shepherds who are not afraid of the dark. But these people become all of a sudden afraid of the light that shines around them. Their feet almost shake underneath them and tremble. They become afraid. They become fearful at the appearance of the angel. Sort of in the same way that when children play in the creek or by the beach and they lift up a large piece of rock and from underneath crawl out all these little creatures 
frantically running away from the exposure of the light, seeking some dark place where they can hide. And these people, shepherds, become terrified when they saw something of the glory of God shining in the appearance of the angel. And these strong men weren't able to cope with the light of God. It's a picture of what the presence of God does to sinners. That apart from mediator, the glory of God is something that will shrivel us up and incinerate us into fear. But here the angel makes an announcement to them. He brings a message of good news to them and says to them, fear not. This is something that God does to all of you. The sense of being overwhelmed by the glory of God that first exposes the darkness of our lives. But that sense is something that God does through the gospel, not to make you run further into darkness, but in order to draw you out into his marvelous light. And the angel says to these shepherds, fear not, because I bring you good news of great joy, good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Now, look very carefully what the angel says because he doesn't say indiscriminately, universally, this will be good news of great joy for all people, but it is with a definite article, all the people, which is always an expression that refers to the people of God. What the gospel brings to God's people, what the gospel does to God's people is great joy. He replaces a terror of God with the joy of the Lord by the message of salvation and grace from on high. And notice what the angel goes on to say. This is a most unusual birth announcement. It's given in a summary fashion, sort of as what you would see in a newspaper headline that contains all the essentials that cover all the journalist questions covering a historical event. Unto you is born a savior. When did this happen? This day. Where? In the city of David. Who? Savior, the Christ, who is the Lord. And how? You're going to see him wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger, and why? To bring peace on earth among those whom God's favor rests, with whom he is pleased. That's the gospel preached to the shepherds by the angel. At the command of God, the angel comes to bring the good news first to these shepherds at night. Think carefully a little bit why it is that God chooses to reveal the gospel first to the shepherds. We have a romantic view of shepherds. as though those were some glorious, peaceful occupation, but the shepherds were the most despised people in that society. Because of their constant handling of animals, they were seen as unclean. They were just a tad bit higher, treated just a little better than leopards, but not much better. And yet the gospel marvelously came first to these low, despised, sinful, and needy individuals 
when they were not looking, in the humdrum of life, and the angel brings the good news in the most unusual fashion, and he makes the most unusual announcement and says, unto you a child is born. Some of you who are parents had to do this when you put in your own announcement, maybe in the newspaper blurb or posting it on the social media. Such and such is born to Adam and Eve or Jack and Jill. Every birth announcement, a child, is always born to parents. But the angel says, a child is born unto you. Unto you is born a Savior. Christ is born unto you and for you, and not unto Mary and Joseph, but unto you. Angel echoes that promise of Isaiah chapter 9. This is a child born unto us who will be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. A child who will be brought into the world by the zeal of the Lord, who will take upon his shoulder the government of the entire world to rule and to reign. And the announcement brought by the angel says to these lowly shepherds, this Savior is born unto you. The Son of God came for you to deal with your sins, to shine light into your darkness, to bring your feet into the way of peace, to be your Savior. A child is born unto you. Something else is here with the preaching of the good news of great joy. The angel does something else with the preaching of the gospel. Notice in verse 12, with the proclamation of the word, as is typical of the way that God works savingly in the Bible, with that promise, there is a sign that accompanies the message. Just as the rainbow came after the promise to Noah not to destroy the earth by the flood, just as the promise of innumerable descendants promised to Abraham came with a sign of circumcision, just as Jesus appointed on the night in which he was betrayed bread and wine to be a perpetual sign that points us to his death, his body offered, his blood shed, and shed for you, and the sign of water with a covenant promise to regenerate and renew you by the Holy Spirit in baptism, uh, of the water of baptism pointing you to that promise to cleanse you from sins from, through the sprinkled blood of Christ and the pouring out of the Spirit that gives you new heart. Just like all the patterns throughout God's promises given. So the angel gives these shepherds a sign. And he says the sign will be this. A child will be wrapped in swaddling cloth and lying in a manger. The Lord of glory will be lying helplessly in abject weakness. The eternal Son of God will be found in a trough tightly wrapped in swaddling cloth, subjected to abject weakness, and even subjected to what many noted here to be a kind of medical ignorance and misunderstanding of that time. Why did they tightly wrap 
a newborn infant. Kind of an old wives' tale that uh, if you tightly wrap the baby's limbs to restrict movement, the child will be kept warm. The swaddling cloth were thought to ensure that the child's limbs would grow straight. Not so much of a medical basis for this practice, and yet that was the practice of the time. And Jesus, the newborn infant, will be subjected to that kind of misunderstanding and ignorance as well. And that will be the sign given. The eternal Son of God coming in a helpless bundle of humanity. This is an amazing picture and illustration of the way that the Son of God humbled himself to be underneath the profoundest weakness in human life. All of that pointing to us to the way in which he would become the savior of sinners, sinful men and women like ourselves. This is a picture, a sign, that indicates to us of the journey of infinite distance between heaven's glory and the stable and the manger and the swaddling cloth in which the Lord of glory in human flesh would be tightly bound to point us to the ultimate saving truth that the helper and keeper of Israel who neither slumbers nor sleeps coming in weak human flesh wrapped in swaddling cloths will even go descend further to the cursed death upon the tree. This is to show us, the sign is pointing to us, even the greater distance he is prepared to descend, that this very infant body, tightly wrapped in cloth in its earliest infancy, this very body is going to be wrapped and held tight, bound in ropes, and laid upon another piece of wood in order to be offered as a sacrifice for your sins. And unto you a Savior is born, what is a sign? The Lord of glory has come to be that for you. How do you know that a Savior is born to you? Remember what Jesus says later in his ministry, to this unbelieving generation, no sign is given except the sign of Jonah. Three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. But here, the angel says that right at the onset of Jesus' human life, the sign given to you is Jesus himself. The God-man come into this world to lay down his life to be your savior, that is a sign that he will be your savior. So there is this angelic appearance, overwhelming glory of God, causing the shepherds to fear, followed by the angelic announcement of Jesus' birth. And then there is this angelic outburst of heavenly praise. Verse 14, suddenly heaven opened, and joined this single angel is all of a sudden joined by the host of heaven and they all gave glory to God and they said glory to God in the highest for bringing peace among those of good pleasure. The Greek literally says among them of good pleasure. 
I kind of think the way we have it in our English Bible is an unfortunate translation because it tends to imply that it is a favor given to those with whom God is pleased as though that source of God's pleasure is found in us. But this is a language of grace. It's a language used in Ephesians chapter 1. God's good pleasure, his electing purpose, it's the language of electing love, his grace. And what the angels are glorifying God for, ultimately, is the saving grace shown to men, which brought them peace. Because of this child's coming, men who are once alienated from God and at enmity with God would be reconciled to God. And having been justified by his blood, they would have peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is our peace, who makes peace by the shedding of his blood. And that's what causes the whole host of heaven to erupt into a chorus of praise and the entire army of angels exuberantly singing a song of doxology. Now, if the angels who do not experience salvation themselves praise God like that for the gospel, then how much more should you be devoting yourself to the glorifying of your God the Savior whenever you have opportunities to do so with a church and with a host of heaven. Angels who do not know personally the grace of God praise and glorify God like this. How much more you who have been the recipient of the grace of God should be overflowing and bursting forth with glorifying God your Savior for the pleasure he has bestowed upon you. So that's the third thing. How does Jesus' birth relate to the angels? Well, they appear, they announce the good news, and they praise God for his grace. Then fourthly, what does this all mean to the shepherds? And we'll go much quicker here. Look at these shepherds, verse 9, initially fearful, and then they were given the good news, the gospel, and the sign that accompanies it. And then look at their response in verse 15. They said, let us go over and see. The gospel has been proclaimed to us verbally. Now let us go and see if these things are really true. And so they hurry, they make their way, and find, as the angel has spoken to them, this child laying in a manger together with Joseph and Mary. And verse 17, when they saw it, they themselves made known the saying, the gospel announcement that they had been told concerning this child to Joseph and Mary. In other words, they had been preached the gospel first, and they brought this good news now to Joseph and Mary. And all wondered, and Mary received that with joy. And verse 20, the shepherds returned glorifying God and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is what's happening here. They believed the gospel. They saw the fulfillment of the promise with their own eyes. They shared the good news with Joseph and Mary. And then in the end, they worshipped and praised and glorified God. Uh, They are, and Luke is purposefully using the same word for praise in verse 20, used of the angels back in uh, verse Uh, 13, to show us a connection. And this is the normal 
a more prevalent Greek word for praise. The shepherds are doing exactly the same things that the angels are doing in heaven. This is the same word that the Greek translation of Psalm 117 will uh, use to call all nations and peoples to extol and praise God. This is the doxology we tend to sing quite frequently here in our morning worship. Praise the Lord God, all you nations, it's the same language. And we find the shepherds uh, being led to the worship of God like that. This is what the gospel does to you, believers. You come and see. You're told the good news and you come and see. Where do you see that for yourself? Uh, Luke has told us, I've written this gospel to you so that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught and told. The whole of the New Testament, the apostolic writings, uh, is a right eyewitness testimony of what they themselves have heard and seen and touched and handled concerning the word of life so that you may see and know that these things are true. And when the gospel comes, then two things happen in the believer's life. You go tell others about the good news, and you become more and more like the angels in worshiping and praising God. How do the shepherds who began the night shift without any intimidation of the grace of God breaking into their lives end up by the end of this passage? They end up praising and glorifying God for the glorious good news of salvation. And then finally, I want you to see, fifthly, how Mary and Joseph feature into the birth narrative. And we tend to think of Mary and Joseph as human instruments and participants in the coming of Jesus. Mary followed God, obeyed God, submitted herself to God, believed, and they served God even at a great cost to themselves. The travel journey, very difficult. And here the promised child is born. Mary's firstborn is here. Mary's a mother. But the important thing to note here is that they are not actually participants in the gospel story, but they are recipients of the good news that they themselves, even after witnessing the birth of this Savior, needed the word spoken to them. They needed the comfort and clarity of the gospel declared to them, brought to them through the shepherds. They themselves needed the good news preached to them on this occasion when Jesus was born. And you see the response, Mary, in verse 19. She treasured up all these things. She kept in her heart all the things she has heard as a treasure. The Greek verb there, treasured, used one other time when Herod locked up John the Baptist. And we read in the gospel, Herod kept John the Baptist safe in prison, knowing him to be the righteous man. And you know what happens? His daughter uh, makes a request. Herod makes a rash vow. He ended up having to behead John the Baptist, but Herod kept John safe. Just to give you a picture of what Mary is doing here. It's like gospel is a treasure and her heart is a safe box. And Mary, in her heart, is like a precious deposit 
putting the gospel into the safety box of our heart and preserving it from decay, corruption, and devaluation, all the while pondering, meditating upon all that was spoken to her concerning Jesus Christ. Well, that's the posture of every believer. The good news is spoken to you, and we guard the good deposit of the gospel in our hearts when we believe. I simply ask, is Jesus Christ the treasure which you put into the safe box, safety box of your own heart? Is the gospel the treasure that you are willing to sell everything else in your life in order to safeguard until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, until the day when you come and see him face to face. Psalmist says, just like Mary pondered these things, great are the works of the Lord, delighted by all who, studied by all who delight in them. And Mary was simply being a Psalm 111 believer. This is how the first narrative unfolded. Caesar Augustus is a, a, a decree. And Jesus is taking on human flesh. The angels appearing and announcing the good news and praising God and the shepherds going to share the good news with Mary and Joseph and Mary and Joseph being comforted by and treasuring in their hearts the gospel proclaimed to them. And as we finish, finally, how does it relate to you? How do you relate to this story? Or you receive it with faith? This is the good news of great joy. This is something that ought to produce joy in your heart, that a Savior is born unto you. This is a thing that should lead you to praise and glorify God together with the angels. Just like the shepherds become imitators of the angels, become more like the angels by the end of this passage. This is where the gospel should lead all of you. And let me remind you from our larger catechism that this is something that you pray daily. What do we pray in the third petition of the Lord's Prayer, which is, your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Now let me just read to you the answer as we finish. Whenever we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray that acknowledging that by nature we and all men are not only utterly unable and unwilling to know and to do the will of God, but also to prone to rebel against his word, to repine and murmur against his providence, and wholly inclined to, the, to do the will of the flesh and of the devil, we pray that God would, by his Spirit, take away from ourselves and others all blindness, weakness, indisposedness, and perverseness of heart, and by his grace, make us able and willing to know, do, and submit to his will in all things with the like humility, cheerfulness, faithfulness, diligence, zeal, sincerity, and constancy as the angels do in heaven. In other words, what you are praying for, and you should read the shorter catechism version of the answer because we're essentially praying that we 
would be enabled to do and obey God's will as the angels do always in heaven. And what is the angelic life all about? It is as onlookers of salvation glorifying God for what Christ has done and what is the spiritual life of the church. It is for you who have tasted the salvation of God, his goodness and his love and his mercy to be more and more devoted to the one who loved you and gave himself up for you and what will make you willing and lively and delighted in your service of the Lord? What will make you more and more like the angels? And the answer is only the gospel, only the gospel can do that. So believe, the uh, saints of the Lord, this is good news of great joy. Savior, born unto you. Trust in him. Believe him. Make room for him with all of your heart. He's a Savior, great Lord. Let us worship him. Let's pray together.